Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. The government is in disarray and this week we will get our best idea yet of the Tory plan for post-Brexit Britain as Chancellor Philip Hammond unveils his latest budget. After throwing away a 25-point poll lead in June's general election, many Tory backbenchers are calling for the party to abandon the austerity project, while others want to go further in making the UK a hyper-capitalist tax haven. Which way will Hammond go? I'm Connor Pope, and I'll be digging down into the budget prep with Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Director Richard Angel, and Alan Simpson, CEO of Labour in the City and a Progress Strategy Board member. Jeremy Corbyn recently popped up on an episode of Celebrity Gogglebox, while former Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale made the unusual progression of saying, get me out of here, before joining the new cast of I'm a Celebrity. Ha ha. <laughs> Clearly then, there is an appetite for politics people on reality TV, and it is surely only a matter of time until barrel-scraping producers turn to the Progressive Britain podcast for its next generation of stars. So, Alison, the phone rings, and someone asks you to do reality TV, which show are you hoping that it is well obviously when our ed did strictly last year there was a lot of chat about oh wouldn't it be wouldn't, wouldn't you love to do strictly and like there's a certain sense in which the dancing does look kind of fun but obviously the reality tv show that anyone would want to be on is the x factor <laughs> i mean it's the big one right and you know, all of that, like, all of the, like, prancing about in Strictly is all well and good, but the X Factor is where it gets serious, surely. It... Doesn't everyone, like, sit there on a Saturday night thinking, well, Strictly for a bit of a laugh, but actually what I really care about is the X. Is Am X I alone is in X that? Is X Factor still big? I thought it had kind of waned a little bit in recent years. Do they still get the Christmas number one every year and that sort of okay, thing? Okay, frankly, they're messing around with the format now. It's irritating everyone. But I, I, think, that, I think that basically, you know, let's be honest... What the kids are interested in is X Factor. Is this not a terrible analogy for the centre-left? It was once a big thing that everyone did want to do when we actually had some X Factor and now it's just <laughs> desperately scrabbling around for some talent. Ouch! And what you, darling, it does feel like a little bit of an analogy. What, what for would it. you go for, then? That politics might be. 
I would actually quite like to be on Strictly and have a male partner, which would be quite exciting. <laughs> but as that has been poo-pooed as an idea, I would obviously like to be on the Bake Off. Not that I can cook, but... That feels like a bit of a limitation. Yeah, if, you can't, if you can't cook. <laughs> Going out on the first week would be is it, amazing. Be <laughs> but, yeah. Is it the ponds? Do you just like the ponds? No, I, I just love... Well, Mary Berry's not on it anymore, but I just... I, I love the baking. I love the... So I'm we're, about it. Know, I've never it's the, actually, one, it's the one that I like religiously watched. You know, I've never watched it. No, I've never what, seen never? Shame. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not watch it? Yeah, I was not interested. I watched like, it. I don't, ne- I don't mind if other people like it, but I can't be bothered watching programmes about cooking. I'd never seen it before, and I watched the last episode of one season, and by the end of that episode, I was in tears. It was like, <laughs> it was the most important thing that happened to me that year. I bought, I bought flour, I bought eggs. Wow. I never baked, but yeah. <laughs> I went out and got it all. Wow. Yeah. What's your programme? Well, obviously, it's Geordie Shaw, which is the most important thing on television. I've been out in Newcastle. It's good fun. <laughs> but also, You'd like to do that for a living. Yeah. And also, I think it'd be the one place I'm the posh guy in the room. That sounds like a right old laugh. I'd like to go there. Yeah. The only reality show that I watch at all, I think, is Grand Designs, which I like because essentially you never know whether you're going to get an episode from 2004 or like 2016. And in 2004, it's all people being like, I'm going to make this house out of diamonds and, I, you know, budget is no option. And then nowadays, all of the episodes are like, you know, Leroy and Janet are like turning a London bin into their <laughs> home. Like, <laughs> it's and it's run over budget. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a visual representation of our country's fortunes. But the one that I would definitely go on, I think, is Strictly. I don't watch it, but every single year when it's the final, my mum invites all of her friends round to watch it at their house. And she invites me round with the kind of invitation that you can only get from your mum, where you know you can't say no. But essentially, I'm only being there so that I can keep everyone's wine glasses topped up and serve food. (laughs) Which is why you have children. In just one year, I would like to be able to say no, because I'm on the Strictly Final. Actually, actually, (laughs) mum, I can't come this year. (laughs) It was very exciting last year when Ed B got to Blackpool. Again, as you were saying, Richard, there was something like wonderful about all of these kind of labour centre-left people desperately hoping to kind of win an election for their hero to get Ed Balls to Black... Cooper organises the phone banks. exactly. But yeah, maybe we could do a a Twitter poll during this week to see if people would rather see Alison on X Factor, Richard on British Bake Off, Alan on Geordie Shaw or me on Strictly. Yeah, let's do it. Come on. It's coming to Twitter. But if any listeners have any thoughts about other reality shows that they'd like to see us on or which politicians maybe should should gear up for another reality show, do tweet them at us to at Progress Online, at Connor Pope, at Richard Angel, or at Alison underscore McGovern. So, Richard, I've heard a rumour that if people like the Progressive Britain podcast, there's something that they can do to help us out. There is, Alison. Oh. People can subscribe themselves. They can rate our podcast wow. on iTunes and they can leave a review. And that means that it not just gets to the audience that's already listening to the Progressive Britain podcast, but gets to other audiences. And Connor and I do a review show that comes out every Friday where we pick not just the best review, but the people who are engaging most with the podcast who leave their review that we give out a book, sometimes a mug, to the people who be engaging most. So we're keen to hear and make this a two-way conversation. So it's not just about audience participation. There's fancy gifts too. What more could you Amazing. want? Amazing. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Budget week. It's like Christmas for politicos. It literally is. A, a good budget has giveaways and big surprises, but sometimes you've written a list and you know what to expect. Alison, <laughs> can I ask you that question? I spent ages this weekend trying to work out whether I could write a advent calendar-esque <laughs> pre-budget article. I decided not to in the end because it would be a bit sad. But it is a big week. I mean, I think this budget is absolutely massive, if I'm honest, because... I think that Philip Hammond is in a very interesting position. Politically, he should be very weak because he's kind of a lone voice in the cabinet that seems to be pro and more sensible Brexit. But actually, because of the general election, he's kind of in a position of strength because everyone thought he was going to get sacked. And then it turned out that, that the prime minister wasn't quite as in touch with the British public as she thought she was. So now he's politically in a stronger position. The problem that he's got is that economically... It's the inverse of that. So he's in a much weaker position than he thought he was going to be. You know, the fundamental question for any chancellor is, you know, what does the medium term future look like? What's going to happen with growth? Is our economy growing? Are we getting stronger? Are we able to pay for the things that the country needs? And so we have been dealing with this budget deficit now since the financial crash, George Osborne basically told people he'd have dealt with it long ago. Philip Hammond thought that he had done a, a really clever thing, which is basically in his first budget, he he pushed back the deficit target way beyond 2025. And that gave him this headroom. So basically it meant that he had space within the budget to pay out a bit more um, in public spending if he needed to, to take a little bit more time dealing with the deficit to make sure that as the Brexit kind of headwinds hit, that he had a bit of spare capacity in case spend upped because of, I don't know, because unemployment went up or because as is happening now, given the amounts of cuts that people have dealt with, there was a massive demand for reinvestment in public services. The problem that he has is that it now looks like that growth will slow 
And that means that the kind of space that he thought he had created has basically come crashing down back upon him. And it looks now that he will have a really pretty tight situation to deal with financially. So he's got a lot of political space, but actually not much economic space at all. That sounds actually quite similar to your Alan general rule about what is a good budget and a bad budget. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, a, bu- a good budget is a budget where you have money and a bad budget is a budget where you don't, right? And he hasn't got any money. The, the simple fact is he's he's trying to pull a rabbit out of the hat with a very small hat and the hat is shrinking. If you look at the economy at the moment, growth running at about one and a half percent, inflation's running at about three percent, something like that. It's hard to measure exactly, but in that ballpark, that's Japan in the 90s. And yeah. we know where that leads. But it's, we've very... faced, it's worse than that because we've already kind of been through Japan in the 90s. And now it looks like we're going to do the whole thing again for the next... Yeah, you're completely right. We're looking at super cycles in a way you don't normally get in the West, where we're at a point in a cycle where you'd normally expect to start to batten down the hatches, but they're already battened down. The Bank of England is starting to raise interest rates. That's going to put a lot more pressure on the economy. Their room for fiscal change is very, very small. How quickly can I just ask, because I'm sure lots of our listeners, not me by any sense of the imagination, but a lot of our listeners maybe not know much about Japan economics. How did Japan get out of there in the 90s? Well, the answer is always technological change. I mean, the answer is a productivity rise in the sense of, in simple terms, the economy needs to learn to be able to do more with the resources that it's got. Again, the problem that Philip Hammond has is that the reason why growth prospects look pretty dim, firstly, Brexit, which I'm sure we'll come to in a minute, but also, basically, we seem to be in a a new situation in terms of productivity. So productivity growth has slowed. The the bank and the Treasury and the OBR for like the past five years have been saying, oh, well, once productivity growth returns, we'll kind of escape this pattern of low growth. But it doesn't seem to. So the banks now basically changed its stance to say, we think this is a new normal. We think that productivity growth is just going to maintain this this slow level. And so that's the root of uh, Philip Hammond's problem. Um, and so that's quite a big change, isn't it? So Richard Choate has said that previously they have predicted that productivity is lower, but it would go back to a normal. They're now saying this is a new normal. And so this is factored in as a problem for Philip Hammond, not just in this budget, but in budgets to come. Yeah, that's right. And the, the thing about tech innovation is... In the past, it's it's made the productivity per person better. So a person sat at a workbench has been able to do more work. What it's doing now is it's reducing jobs. And considering that our economy is almost wholly funded by uh, consumption by consumers, you know, it's it's people going and spending in shops. When technology reduces the uh, average income for a workforce and the number of people employed, then it's very hard for an economy like ours to to take over. To a certain extent, you move into investment, but that's not really on the cards for the UK. It's a difficult position. I think that technology has a lot to offer our economy in the future. However, when you've got a situation where 5 million people in Britain lack basic skills, literacy and numeracy, your productivity challenge that you need to address is much likely to be to do with that rather than some kind of like new invention, especially because if you unpick what's gone on with productivity, basically we've got high value, highly productive sectors and low income, low productive sectors. So we've got a lot of jobs that are like low earning. And that I think the big question we need to ask ourselves is, how can we improve productivity for that group of people? Because they are also the people who are most likely to cost the government money in some way, either on income support through tax credits or now universal credit, 
or because they'll go in and out of employment because they've got a mental health condition or something else. So basically, what I think we're likely to hear from Philip Hammond um, on Wednesday is some kind of like shiny new thing on tech that he'll say, you know, we've got this historic challenge on productivity. Therefore, I'm going to like establish some new institute of mathematics or something like that. But actually, that's just a sideshow. I mean, the really, really big revolutionary things that he could do would be about working out how we involve the 12 million people who do not have digital skills. In our- so if you were the chancellor now, would you be focusing, and I know this is a slightly arbitrary choice, on the skills challenge or investment in you know new train lines or whatever? Which one of the two would help Britain's productivity best? Um, that's a really hard question because the reason we need new train lines is because basically because a lot of the ones that we've got are very, very old and broken. And actually railways are crucial, but often they're not actually a game changer. So I think I'd be like... Investing in train lines because they're like a they're like a need to have. It's like if you need to get to work and you've got to have a car to drive to work, it doesn't change the fact that you've got a job, but you couldn't do it without it. But I think the real game changer would be skills yeah. and also childcare. But I will. I think that's completely right. Like the, that. the chancellor, I think, is I think I'm right in saying is going to announce a 75 million AI investment, and that I mean, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, <laughs> and that's just to put that in perspective. Apple's research and development spend last year was $10 billion. So quite what 75 million in AI is going to achieve, I don't know. But you're right, it's in the wrong place. The fact is the workforce are not in a position to benefit from new technologies. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, when people hear him announce that stuff in the budget, I mean, we should all just like collectively yawn. It's like, it's literally nothing. The big, massive productivity challenges, but like skills we've mentioned, but also people are really up against it in terms of care, in terms of childcare. And if you look at where a lot of parents are, the system that we've got, which is complex, it's a combination of free hours, uh, tax-free, and some through tax credits, means that a lot of, especially people on low incomes, are like desperately just trying to get the bit of work they can do done whilst they've got their free hours and a bit of help from their parents or a relative or something. And that means that they are not able to spend time either training to improve their skills because they're looking after their kid when they're not in work or, you know, they really can't look for promotion because how how would they um, spend more time in work to deserve that promotion? So they can't kind of gain new skills whilst they're in work either. So for me, the big investment thing, I mean, yes, I like trains. No, not in a sad way. They are important, but that's still a bit. You are pro trains. I am pro trains. You're on the record as pro trains. But that is not as revolutionary in terms of productivity as either skills or a big, massive reform of how childcare works. And you've been arguing that this should be rather than viewed as recurrent spending. This should be viewed as an investment. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one because look, I'm not trying to like fix it here, but I guess the thing that I'm trying to that I've always argued is it would have such a big impact on how people could work that if we had truly universal access to childcare, it would sort of have such a big impact on the choices that people could make that it would really stir things up in our labour market. Or in and do you expect economy. to see any sort of movement on that in this week's budget? Not a bit. No. I mean, I will happily eat my hat if he goes anywhere on it. But I think the Tories are just like, yeah, we've done Labour's hours. We're fine. You know. 
And how's Brexit all the people we know have got nannies, you know? <laughs> and so, how's Brexit going to be dealt with in this budget? And is there going to be spending for a No Deal scenario? Well, the the, the problem is they don't know what Brexit they're going to have, right? So they they, they have to have enough uh, wiggle room in the in in the money to allow them to respond either way. But even a even a mid Brexit, not not soft, not hard, a kind of gold, well Goldilocks Brexit is not doing it, but some you know <laughs> a kind of Goldilocks ish Brexit costs you about half a percent of GDP every year for as far as we can forecast, right? That's a soft Brexit. It costs you. Yeah. So you lose, in economic growth, half a percent, even with a reasonably sensible version of what, what this looks like. If we have a cliff edge, you're moving away from just the question of what, what happens to growth and therefore tax in the long term. You're moving into a situation where you have a dramatic possibly recessionary event, not even after Article 50, but before Article 50 finishes, because everybody starts moving things offshore. It's very difficult for the government to know what, what to do, and they, can't, they, they don't have enough room in the numbers to plan for that. So it's, it hits them whether they like it or not, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Also, all of this now is part of the negotiations. So, if, so if, you know, everybody will be watching very closely on Wednesday what he says. If he suddenly announces, as some of the Brexiteers on the Tory would like him to, if suddenly announces like billions for like new port capacity and all of this, then that sort of colours the negotiations in a way that Hammond has been nervous about doing so or has been reticent to do so. So he hasn't wanted to make predictions or forecasts or put anything in the mix in the negotiations. So again, I think that he'll probably say as little as possible. I think he'll try and say, you know, Brexit offers us risks and opportunities and we should manage those in the best way we can. I think it will be like warm words on Brexit to try and keep the dogs at bay on his own side and to try and not scare the horses of the people in, you know, industry who are worried. So essentially is your expectation in that this budget is going to be the one that essentially could set out the path that Britain takes over the next few decades, essentially, because of where it is in the Brexit negotiations. And so far, since the election and losing their majority, the Tories have essentially just been trapped and are muddling through and have no real sense of direction. And in this kind of budget, that you might expect them to finally set out what direction they're going in is your expectation. They will just carry on muddling through, essentially doing the same thing, but with a slightly different political message attached to it. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm happy to be wrong if Philip Hammond comes out and says, look, we've got this wrong. Actually, you know, in my party, probably Anna Subri and Nicky Morgan are more in the right place of where we should be economically. I'd be really happy if Philip Hammond turned up and said, you know, it turns out that the cost of Brexit is going to be really high. So we should try and do what we can to bring that cost down. And that means staying in the single market and staying in the customs union. I'd be really happy if he did that. I'd be really surprised if he does that. Because again, it's back to like, he doesn't have a lot of economic space and he's completely constrained by the politics. So if he did that, the political, you know, the economic consequences would be really good for him, but the political consequences would be really bad. So I think from the outside, he will probably just say very little. And therefore I think, you know, Labour's job is to say, we have been talking about a jobs first Brexit. You know, this situation makes it exactly clear what the impact on our country will be. And it's not just on the jobs of the kind of people that I represent who work in manufacturing that are affected, but it's also public sector jobs as well. And that, you know, if we go down this Tory road of their kind of Brexit, we are hammering public sector workers again for years to come. So does the envelope becoming more difficult for Philip Hammond potentially make things more difficult for Labour? So traditionally, our argument 
post-recession has been about the need for investment and that has been aided by the fact that investment has been relatively cheap because interest rates are so low. Those interest rates have gone up and there seems to be a sense that they would continue to go up further. Does this shoot Labour's fox? I think, well, there, there are three reasons for a government to invest, aren't there? One is because you need stuff. You need roads, schools, hospitals. You need stuff. The second reason is you're at a point in the cycle where it's cheap to do it because interest rates are a quarter of a percent or half a percent or whatever. And the third reason is for economic stimulus. We always need the stuff. We need the stuff now. And frankly, if we want to have a successful economy for the next 20, 30 years, you need that stuff. Back to my trains. Back to your trains. Yeah. Everybody loves a train. I do with a few new schools as well. I think primary places is a big issue. But yeah, on. yeah. A lot, whatever your stuff is, we can have lots <laughs> of that. The, uh, the, the second thing, the, the, sort of the idea is the owls. Yeah. Um, are they expensive? Don't know. Don't know. No, we'll we'll get somebody to tweet in with the cost of borrowing. Uh, the, the, the second bit, the sort of the cost of borrowing, that is moving away from Labour definitely. And it means that the cost of something like, you know, renationalising an industry does go up significantly and their ability to pay for it goes down. The reality, I think, is that for Labour, the, the logic of it probably sits outside the economics, but it is going to be more expensive to do it in the next 10 years than it would have been a year ago. I think that's definitely true. Which brings me to Alan's final purpose of like why you do investment. You know, I think it's Pat McFadden who's talked for quite some time about a kind of Marshall plan for some of the areas that voted leave have felt economically left behind. And I would argue have lost the sense of having an economic purpose. This is some of the middle cities, yeah, Barnsley, so I think, Wolverhampton, Exactly, so I think field. to take my own area of Merseyside, Steve Rotherham has talked quite compellingly about making Merseyside, uh, you know, the most connected city, really investing in how quickly we can get broadband and all of the kind of new technologies to make that work a lot faster because that will give us an edge and I think that there's got to be an economic plan for places that have felt both felt a sense of decline and where their populations have shrunk because people have had to move to, you know, Edinburgh or Leeds or London and making sure that whether it's like Barnsley or places in South Yorkshire or some places in South Wales that have felt a sense of drift. I think that's where investment can really help and be crucial. It's got to be the right thing and it has got to genuinely work i remember in the again showing my age in the in the 80s and early 90s michael Heseltine was lauded for uh, building the albert dock which people who've been to labor conference will know this beautiful dock area that now has a conference center but that investment at the time didn't work so when the dock was rebuilt as a retail area because nobody had the money to pay for the stuff in the shops a lot of the shops ended up closing and it stood empty for a few years so there's real risks on investment, the kind of Keynesian kind of counter decline type investment. But there's definitely an argument for doing it. And I think that rebalancing um, effort is where we should be focusing. So if we're calling Hammond to account for anything, it should be if he comes up with a housing plan and it doesn't deal with brownfield sites and it isn't about putting the right housing in areas that have declined economically, then we should challenge him on it because you know, people in, in London and areas of overdevelopment have really suffered for some time because of that overdevelopment, whereas I think it's got to be about rebalancing and regeneration, otherwise the investment isn't going to work. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And it's interesting if you 
if you consider the way that Brexit will impact the country, if we, if we move on to a hard Brexit and we have World Trade Organization tariffs on on goods, for some parts of the country that, that actually might be quite positive for them because it means that the thing that they make is no longer being imported. For other bits of the country, the reverse is true. And it's very, very regionally specific. So the Northeast, they make cars. That's a 10% tariff. Uh, that's very bad for the Northeast. They'll do very badly, for example. And we need to think about how we use the government's spending power, not just in terms of building trains, but employing people and all of that stuff as well, to think about how we fill in those gaps, which are definitely going to come. On the um, issue, actually, of a Marshall Plan for Left Behind Areas, if listeners are interested in this, Pat McFadden will be writing on exactly that issue for the December issue of Progress magazine. Oh, fabulous news. will be out in just a couple of weeks. And Alison, you've written an article over the past few days. I have. It's about the 10 things that people will want to watch out for when the budget happens on Wednesday. And I'm going to record it for the podcast. So if people in this modern era of flashy new technology can't be bothered to read it, they can listen to it. Wonderful. An audio listicle that will be available on our podcast pages in the usual places at 5pm on Tuesday. Now we need to finish that discussion there, but if you want to take part in the debate, whether it's Japanese economics in the 90s or state-funded owls, do email us at office at progressonline.org.uk, tweet us at progressonline, or leave us a comment in a review on iTunes. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and rate. Every Tuesday, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's follow-up extra show. Now, this one's very exciting because Alison thinks that she knows the answer to it. I but think, she, I she, think I do. She's obviously not going to say it on the podcast now, but I might record my lips it are sealed. and we can, uh, we can play it to see if she's right on Friday's show. But my question this week is, when was the last general election not contested by either Ken Clark or Gerald Kaufman? Send your answers to at Progress Online or at Connor Pope on the Twitter, or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a Progress mug. We're going to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Alan Simpson joining us today. Me and Richard will be back on Friday to respond to your comments and dish out some prizes. So do get in touch and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast with me, Alison McGovern, with Richard Angel and Connor Pope. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. <laughs>